And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm really excited to be joined today by Matt Cordova, who is currently on the staff of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Matt, welcome to the show. No, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Matt, we're going to get into, into your incredible career in government in just a little bit. You've, you've been in a bunch of different buildings, a number of different roles. But before we dive into all of that, let's just start with one core foundational question. And I'd like to ask, what has motivated you in your career? Well, let me back up a little bit. It's interesting today, you know, today's June 6th, a very special day in American history and the history of freedom triumphing over tyranny, but at great cost. And so, uh, you know, this is about my 22nd year in federal government service. So my path into public service was really motivated by kind of the experiences and contributions and then struggles of, of several generations of my family, which of course took place in the broader context of similar struggles and many Americans, farmers, and in my family, you know, were farmers, teachers, state public servants, citizen soldiers, community activists, a range of, of backgrounds. My family lineage actually traces back to the 16th century uh, Spanish conquistadores who arrived in North America, uh, and they came to North America based on exploration. You know, but my modern worldview is kind of, it's been influenced by the power of American inspiration. My formative years when I was younger, you know, I grew up in Colorado Springs for pretty much most of my young life, but I was always in the shadow of kind of the Cold War, literally like NORAD in visual view of my my home. So the U.S.-Soviet competition rivalry is very formative in, in my mind and out, outlook, but so is like the fall of the Berlin Wall. It happened during my last year of high school. Mikhail Gorbachev visited Stanford the summer prior to me actually, you know, attending Stanford as an undergraduate. So the end, you know, we all thought the end of history seemed possible, if not actual at that time. And our, our national mood after the fall of the wall was more tuned to opportunities than fear or threats or, or various forms of angst. So as I was looking at this, particularly as I became a, a young adult, you know, I just kind of thought about a calling and where can I use my abilities and talents most. And and that led me into, you know, I'd seen the path of, of parents, family, teachers, uh, and they were all doing things that were about something greater than themselves. Getting to kind of the bottom line here, that's what led me to, uh, you know, pursue public service career in national security and government in particular. It's quite a story. It's amazing. 16th century. Uh, your family goes back a, a really long way. With all of that as background, your first job out of college was actually in the private sector. Can you talk a little bit about why did you go private sector first and, and what was it what was it like? Yeah, it was an interesting time and history is always like the backdrop, you know, for for just about anything. So if you think about that period in American history, nineteen ninety four was just right before one of the first big government shutdowns in American history. Significant tension between the White House and Congress. The contract with America was kind of a big centerpiece of legislation in uh, in Congress. So government service was actually kind of hard to get into at the time because you know budgets were under duress. The narratives around government were not um, especially positive or strong. So there were all kinds of these factors that even for those who wanted to serve, it made it difficult to serve. And being out on the West Coast and in Stanford, you know there. There's no shortage of uh, private sector callings and momentum and gravitational pull. You think coming out of a place like Stanford, it's just like the golden doors open. But, you know, 
regardless of who you are, and in my case in particular, I still had to work pretty darn hard to find something to do. So I actually ended up in Colorado. My sister had just gotten out of college. Her husband was finishing graduate school. I ended up actually taking care of my nephew for a year, which until I had my own child recently, that was the hardest I ever worked in my life. But again, it gave me like a little perspective about calling callings above oneself. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about how do I get into public service, consulting a lot of people, and through just networking and relationships, former professor uh, linked me up with a guy in D.C. who was a think tanker, but also had his own private consulting company. So, you know, that eventually, after a few conversations, turned into, you know, an actual job, moved out to Washington. And that company did a lot of work with Department of Defense, Department of Energy. Um, so it was kind of my first foot in the door. Interestingly, I spent a lot of time actually working with, at the time, McDonnell Douglas, which subsequently was folded into Boeing on fighter aircraft programs and uh, defense budgets, et cetera. So, you know, the path into public service, is there are many. And the one thing I discovered through my experience was it's not always the way you think it's going to be. That certainly has played out actually throughout my career. And so I think coming in, sometimes one just has to be a little flexible about the long-term goal and some of the short-term ways to, to find your calling in its fullest you know, realization. Couldn't agree more. Thank you for those reminders on two really important fronts. The first one being coming out of wherever you go to college or, or get a graduate degree, real easy to kind of drink the Kool-Aid and think, all right, everything, you know, world's my oyster. Everyone's going to be begging for me to join them. And reality is, no, you got to work for things in, in, in any field. And, you know, just because we're being trained to be name that name that superlative doesn't mean you don't have to work hard for it. So really appreciate that. And then second, the, the reminder that best laid plans don't survive first contact. Right. And it's it, no matter what you think is going to be your career trajectory, there's right. uh, reality gets in the way. So those are those are really important reminders. Appreciate that. Hey, so being from Colorado and then going to school out on the West Coast, when you got made it to D.C., you know, we talk about cultural differences with other countries, but did you see some cultural differences in Washington? Was it hard for you to, to adjust and adapt up there? We're such a, a diverse nation in so many ways, and, and that's evolved over time. And there's certainly some contrasts and comparisons uh, among the different regions in our country, and Washington certainly has its unique attributes and features. So yeah, there were definitely some, uh, some things to adapt to and adjust to. There were things that, you know, I really liked. You know, and throughout my life, I've always tried to try to center on the strengths and things that are positive, but also not discounting some of the areas, you know, that either are challenging or problematic. So what that means in a more tangible way, some of the biggest observations I had when I came to the East Coast, obviously there's a difference in kind of, I think, a little more upbeat, friendly approach as you go toward, as you move further west, particularly west of the Mississippi. Um, <laughs> There's a little less um, respect for authority as you get west of the Mississippi, but that has spread throughout the country, I think, uh, now. But the more common things that I found across the country, wherever it might be in the south, in you know the northwest, whatever, those are some of the things that really, again, I kind of latched onto and inspired me. And you know, pick any of the great American attributes, and there there are many. But I tended to see those more because at the end of the day, I think there's a bit of a false kind of theme out there in some of our media that, you know, Washington is the enemy. At the end of the day, Washington is us. You know, in our democracy, we elect people who come here to represent us, who appoint the officials that are charged with implementing, you know, the, the policies of the nation and advocating those abroad. So I always try to remember that when I come into work every morning, go home every night, that 
Yes, it is a different little ecosystem here, but it reflects the attributes, good, bad, and otherwise, of the broader American population. And uh, and I just try to keep that as a humbling bedrock to ground what I'm doing. I, I like that a lot, especially because it's, it's, it's really easy to say, okay, this place is different or the culture is is totally obscure here and therefore it's not like me but i think the recognition that that reflects fellow americans is an important one and can help kind of keep us all grounded no matter where in the country or the world we are so appreciate that um let's stay on this theme of culture for a second in your time in government you've been in a variety of different buildings you were in the arms control and disarmament agency in the executive secretariat the state department a variety of bureaus uh, at the State Department, then the Department of Defense, working with the chairman. Can you talk about some of the cultural differences within Washington? Are those different departments and agencies and bureaus the same, or is there significant difference even within those and how they work? Yeah. I mean, across there, are definitely there are cultural boundaries. Organiz- There's a lot of good literature on organizational culture and dynamics, et cetera. And, and I can't pretend to be a an expert on those, but I'm familiar and at least literate with some of that. So yeah, absolutely, you do see these, and there, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that. There are different incentives, motivations for agencies, um, interactions, their their customers, who they serve, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, becoming a master of governmental processes is really actually more about people and understanding what motivates them, how to interact with them. And most importantly, I think, like how to listen. And that's a really undervalued skill sometimes that throughout our development, I think we would do better at, at enhancing, as well as an appreciation for, you know, I think, skills that enhance emotional and social intelligence. A lot of those things are just as important as things like STEM curricula, uh, legal curricula, all the, all the kind of more professionalized elements of our educational system. So culture is important within agencies. It's, you know, its own ecosystem and across agencies. I think a lot of times I I found that you could get things done in Washington, not just within your agency, but more importantly, by building coalitions across agencies with other other governments, agencies in the private sector, non-governmental sector, with Congress. You know, there's so many actors and the art becomes understanding kind of where the key places of influence are for something you're trying to accomplish, where the key places of misunderstanding or opposition are, and then, you know, trying to kind of net out how I'm going to how am I going to move this initiative to where you know we we think it needs to be, and a lot of that depends as much on these social interpersonal leadership skills as it does on like technical proficiency or expertise, and I've seen. Just some of the some of the most brilliant and technically steeped individuals struggle or, or fail because they lack some of those underlying enabling abilities to kind of take something across the goal line collaboratively, um, or at least with some degree of interaction outside of their individual organizations. Well, as a lifelong liberal arts guy and soft skills person, this is it's sort of music to my ears. I'm sure some of our listeners will similarly have uh, not less technical or non-technical backgrounds. So hearing that the ability to listen and all those, those quote-unquote soft skills that we've been told uh, will be important are actually useful is really, it's, it's really nice to know. 
But I, I do want to I want to drill on this a little bit. Even even in a short time in Washington, you start to pick up different stereotypes about the the leadership or organizational cultures of of different big buildings. Can you think about some stuff that's been that that you found to be just wrong or or ways that working in one building has helped you navigate kind of the culture or oh, yeah. or, or organizational challenges of another? Yeah. So I'll give you like the, the classic, a classic example, at least from my perspective, is like the state DOD def, uh, relationship, defense state relationship. So uh, that has its areas of friction and its areas of, I think, well lubricated collaboration, kind of use like an engine analogy. It's a lot of people have characterized it as a Mars Venus relationship. I, I, I'm not, I don't know if that's the best one, but what I would do is give you like some practical examples. So Culturally, back to our point on culture, the Department of Defense at the end of the day is about defending the nation with military power. And so that our culture and our military leadership culture in particular has been schooled in a way that tends to look at military strategy somewhat as, a, as an engineering problem. Uh, and not to oversimplify because there's a lot of art in warfare, but one of the key tenets of, of warfare is reducing uncertainty, reducing the unknown variables, reducing risk to the you know optimized degree possible. And so that logically makes sense. We want to achieve our objectives rapidly. We want to do it in the least cost way. We want to do it in a way that will achieve you know national objectives. You, you, you know the kind of standard talking points along these lines. So that that's kind of the the DOD and particularly military mindset and also the other mindset underlying that is resources are unlimited. We will do what we need and put what we need against the problem to, to solve the problem. Now the State Department mindset is a little different. State Department mindset I think is much more of an artful mindset Indeed, not an engineering mindset at all. Uh, you're not looking to optimize our you know, network of relationships. It's actually looking to kind of foster them, much like George Schultz would call it gardening. And so you tend to have that kind of a mindset in the State Department. And in defense, you have a much tighter the buzzwords integration. I don't know if we're there fully in the Department of Defense, but you have a much tighter team mindset, although there's significant competition among those teams. But when the objectives are clear, the team... And the leadership's decisive. The team moves behind the the ideas or initiative. State Department's a little different. It's I think sometimes a little bit more like feudal Scotland. So you have to be really savvy about bringing different groups and coalitions together in the State Department. It's a little more territorial, but folks are also focused on kind of the nation's objectives and, and national security, but in a much different way. Uh, really, the currency is through building good relationships at a personal level, a national level, and a lot of levels in between. And so there's a more of an, an artful approach to how one does that. And so where a lot of the friction comes is you know, State Department officials are extremely comfortable with ambiguity because that is human nature and the nature of human interaction. And reading the ambiguity and understanding it is not entirely scientific. And so this is a substantial friction between the mindset of kind of the Department of Defense and its engineering mindset and the State Department's more artful approach and mindset. And that's not a pejorative comment. It's just a descriptive comment to distinguish kind of between two broad mindsets. Now, within that, the State Department certainly has organizations that are not necessarily focused as much on the art, as does DOD. 
And so it's a little bit unfair to characterize everyone in each of those departments with the same broad brush. But at a general level, I think it's a fairly sufficient kind of description of some of the tension and friction and why it manifests between the two departments. And to, by the way, the tension is not exactly unhealthy. I think it's important to have tension between those two and, and others, in fact. But the big challenge is how do you achieve collaboration in our system of governance that is so designed on balance of power, distribution of power, et cetera, et cetera. I love that point. It's really important to remember and, and to repeat, which is that the, the, the adversarial system is not a flaw. It is a feature of, of both the executive branch and then, of course, the separation of power across the branches of government. And so having some of that tension is not only okay, it's actually productive. And I think sometimes the narrative of conflict gets too spun up and we get too, too focused on reducing conflict. So I, I really appreciate that point. And I, the, the breakdown, I thought of the, the nature of DOD being an engineering-centric organization and state perhaps being more of a social science-centric organization or, or, or an art-focused organization. Is the message then that engineers should go to DOD and the social scientists should go to state, or, or is, there, is there more nuance there? I think there's a lot more nuance. But if you, if you back up a little bit and look at who goes where, take a look at our military caddies, for instance, and look at, look at the numbers of graduates in their respective fields coming out of the military academies, look at the ROTC cadets and, and the majors that the services sponsor scholarships for, look at the Foreign Service and the profile of Foreign Service officers that are coming into every A100 class, the profile of Foreign Service officers that are retiring every year, the profile of general officers, colonels, lieutenant colonels that are retiring every year. I think, based on my experience, you would see that for the most part, you're going to have lots of engineers coming out of West Point, coming out of Colorado Springs, coming out of the ROTC programs. You're going to have a lot of lawyers. You're going to have a lot of people with political science and humanities background coming into and out of the Foreign Service. Again, not a bad thing, but what I do think is important is that we need to have a much, much broader approach to the kinds of people we're bringing in to the government that's appropriate to the kinds of challenges we're facing right now. And the, the way we're bringing people into the government, into the military, is still set up based on an international and geopolitical environment that no longer exists. It's set up in a, it was set up in a world in which technology is vastly different uh, now and back to the cross collaboration, cross boundary, cross functional, all the buzzwords about working across areas of expertise and knowledge. That is really important. Some some schools have gone this route. Some schools, you know, emphasize you know these uh, like T curriculum approaches, where one develops expertise and then learns to apply it across a broad range of problem sets. There are other ways to go about that kind of interdisciplinary approach. But it's not a one-time shot either. That needs to be inculcated throughout a career, throughout a life. And it's a mindset change. It's not just a mindset change for, for the customer, for the student. It's a mindset for the institutions that are charged with developing people, military or civilian, or both. Which is another point, too, I think, is that I think increasingly we're at risk of, of creating folks that are so steeped in a particular expertise, that their ability to kind of relate that outside of their area of expertise is, is becoming problematic. And their ability to relate that to folks without sufficient understanding about how to, how to think about these issues 
also becomes problematic. So not only do we have to educate, you know, the best in the field, we have to educate just common citizens to be able to think about a range of issues and problems. And as public servants, we have a special obligation to be able to think outside of our assigned organizational boundaries, because it's very difficult, in my experience, to confine one's assigned area of mission or uh, task without having to think about the broader context that it's occurring. So whether that's uh, you know biotechnology and its impact on American competitiveness or space and its impact on you know the interaction among human beings and on different continents, their cross-functional thinking really, I think, is going to become a competitive hallmark if this country is going to continue to succeed the way it has in the past. Absolutely. And I want to come, I, I will come back to this point of the way that we educate the American people or average American citizens to think about uh, some of these issues. But let's, let me ask you first about one of the institutions that can help do some of this cross-functional <laughs> interagency collaboration. And that's where you decided to do your graduate degree, the National Defense University. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to go to NDU versus, say, another private program and uh, what that experience was like? Yeah, so I'll give you like a, a few <clears throat> insights on motivations and then kind of outcomes of, you know, what that produced. So the Department of Defense is, is fortunate because it does have a pretty robust appreciation and value of lifetime education. You know, and there's some day debate about the quality of education and it's its contours, its purpose, but at the end of the day, it has committed resources to ensure that, you know, its its people are continually learning and understanding that context that I, I tried to talk a little bit about that they're operating in and, uh, and supporting decision-making in. And so the government, in particular Department of Defense, uh, operates a number of schools sponsored by the services, and then sponsored by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, and those schools range from the military academy level to senior what are called war colleges that educate kind of the next crop of staff officers and potentially future future leaders. So healthy area of DOD state collaboration is there's a very strong exchange program. State Department puts a sizable number of people as faculty and students into those schools, as do other agencies. Uh, so very valuable, but also built around essentially the DOD the DOD mission, and it's headed more and more in that direction. And so, well, that's another debate for another time. So in my case, the decision to go to NDU was influenced by a couple factors. The State Department has a regularized program, you know, that's somewhat competitive. Most foreign service officers that go usually do pretty well. For civil servants, it's a little tougher to get in, but, you know, there, you, you, there are ways to do that. The State Department really places like very little value on um, professional education, career development, mentorship. So this is one of the few avenues to do. And in fact, the State Department imposes career, virtual career penalties for folks who want to step out and go to school and improve, you know, their uh, their learning foundation to be more effective national security professionals. And there are reasons for that. But at the end of the day, your priorities are what you make your priorities are as an agency. Um, so, you know, the, the, the latitude and incentives weren't right for me to step out. I would have loved to have gone to JFK or Harvard or anywhere, really, that, that offered a great, great program. But NDU is the best, you know, best avenue available. The other thing that's nice about that opportunity was you, you go into an environment 
where you're focused on very real professional applications of the learning material. And that's not unique to these institutions. A lot of uh, private institutions and public state institutions do that as well. But what is unique is the the people that you're with. Um, you're essentially with a small slice of pretty high-performing government and military uh, officials that are generally on their way up, or at least on their way out to other different kinds of experiences. So that turned out to be probably the most valuable part of the experience. And then working and learning a different approach to problem management, to thinking, I think is very valuable for civilians. I wish the military uh, had those kind of opportunities to come into the State Department, to come into USAID, to come over to DHS and learn, not just as augmentation for these agencies' staffs, but actually to come in and learn in their respective institutions. And, and State Department has its own training and education institution. Some of the other agencies do similarly. But uh, I think that would improve our, our civil-military balance and relationship uh, substantially if we could, could do something more like that. What a cool opportunity to be able to go spend some time in that environment. And then your point about exchange and learning from respective institutions, I think, is, is a really important one. And it's, it's one that's been considered in a lot of different forms over the years, right? I, I think back to the, yeah. this conception of the National Security Professional Development Program. And, you know, as, as conceptualized, the idea is that people would learn together, work together, spend time in different agencies to become not just a DOD civilian or a State Department civilian, but a, a U.S. national security professional. Why, why do you think it's so hard for us to put that program and something like it into place? Why do we keep running up against a wall with respect to this type of innovation? Yeah, I think uh, there are probably a few reasons. Back to the competitive nature of our government. Constituencies on the Hill, it's just a natural part of, of, the, of the process and the, the environment. And so every agency has its constituency on the Hill. Um, each educational institution in the government has its constituency. So that's part of it. I think another part of it is there's a zero-sum mentality. If I and agency X, Y, or Z give up people to go be part of a greater cause, that's one less billet in my organization. And the authorizers and appropriators on the Hill in the next budget cycle are going to say, why don't you have that filled? Oh, if you don't have it filled, why have the billet, right? And so there's some very practical and tangible reasons why the agency incentive structure doesn't necessarily support this. I think some of it is also cultural uh, mindset. And so there's a very strong inclination in most agencies and most bureaucracies. Again, there's a lot of literature on this that they tend to prefer direct control over their resources, over their people, over their authorities. And those kind of words always come up as reasons or arguments against pick you know, initiative like the National Security Professionals Program. I think the other piece, though, is also for some of these programs to have a much, uh, much tighter and defined description of the problem and the outcomes that such an initiative would address and solve, and then how we would sustain this going forward. So I think there, you know, I have, I have literally libraries of this stuff in my bookshelf here at work that I've saved over the years of different commissions, different reports that propose these kind of ideas. And there are a lot of good ideas in these various reports, but I think the big thing is kind of timing, which is impossible to control, but also a clear description and advocacy of the problem and what 
the proposed initiative is going to do to address the problem. Mm. And I think that we jump into the solution space a little too quick before thinking about kind of the the problem that you know some of these well-intended initiatives are intended to solve. On that note, let's talk about another idea or innovation that you are a part of in government and kind of some of the, the problem identification and, and solution application that, that was tried over in the State Department. You were kind of present at the moment of conception, if you will, or at least early days of the, <laughs> uh, the coordinator for reconstruction and stabilization in the State Department and what then mm-hmm. became the, the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. So first, just can you talk to us a little bit about kind of the thrust behind standing up those those new offices and what it's like to stand up something new inside a large bureaucracy in a government environment? Oh, yeah. Uh, happy to. I'll pull a phrase out of literature. These were the best times and the worst times. <laughs> and so, you know, one one doesn't have the opportunity in government too often to start something new, especially like an organization and especially in an agency like this, the State Department per se. And so, you know, oftentimes these opportunities are created through either crisis and or some visibly public failing of the government. And so in our case, you know, this was, if you think back again in history, uh, this was immediately after um, the Iraq invasion our failure as a government to think through and plan for the day after military success had been achieved, so to speak. And so this coordinator for reconstruction and stabilization um, was stood up essentially to bring together the civilian elements of government for stabilization efforts and activities, either in concert with military or independent of, of the military. But there is a broad recognition we had failed to uh, to plan, prepare, and conduct these kinds of stabilization operations, and not just Iraq, but really historically. I know, by the way, we've tried this several times in our history and have lost will and momentum, and what we learned and built has been swept into the winds of American history. Well, I, I have no doubt we'll probably recreate something again at some point, and hopefully we'll, we'll have enough kernel of memory to do it right. Public sector startups are pretty interesting in government. A couple observations on at least what I think are some of the fundamentals. One, it's a little different than the private sector. Failure is consequential in the private sector, no doubt. But the path from failure in the private sector has more opportunities, I think, for some productive onwards. Failure in the public sector and as a startup has a much more uh, limiting effect. The uh, other thing I would note is that as a public sector startup, a lot of times, you know, there's there's at least an initial champion or set of champions. In our case, basically, the National Security Council met with the president, everybody hand stamped. Yep, this is a good idea. State Department, you've got the lead. A little bit of debate about the lead and who should be the lead, but kind of State Department came down for that responsibility. And not only a lead, but a interagency coordination role, which was somewhat new. State Department nominally plays that overseas, but it's another story in Washington, D.C., where resources, budgets, and authorities come into play. And agencies, of course, are uh, not exactly generous about sharing those or collaborating across those. So pretty big task to, to pull that together, as well as to generate relevance. And really that, as a public sector startup, is probably one of the first key tasks is one, understanding your problem, two, crafting your mission around that problem in a way that 
multiple audiences, most importantly, your staff and those who are immediately uh, directed by your organization can understand and communicate elsewhere. And then I think the third essential element of a public sector startup is to start generating goodwill and relevance very quickly. And there's some tension there because that often means doing things that may not appear to be within that initial mission scope that your organization, one's organization has developed or at least identified. And it's tough. I'll give you like practical examples. So you, how about the first couple meetings you even try to call, people wonder by what authority are you convening your meeting? And you can bring in, you know, National Security Presidential Directive and, and lay that out for folks and say we're the president of the United States. But as you and I know, and others may this town is full of authorities and policy papers, et cetera. But at the end of the day, what you bring to the table as a practical effect uh, can be very influential or non-influential if you don't have anything to offer. So being in that kind of a situation, we were often, I'll give you an example. We were often like the, um, if there were 10 people at the table, we were the 11th organization at the table. So everyone kind of knows what the other 10 do and there's kind of an implicit understanding. And it really took us the better part of almost less, a little bit less than a decade to kind of come to clarity on what that organization, SCRS, did and what value we brought. And so really achieving clarity on that early is very important. Finding good people. And by good, I would come back to some of the skills I mentioned earlier, uh, emotional intelligence, ability to collaborate, a willingness to learn inside and outside your organizational responsibilities. Those skills are just as important as the um, the technical expertise and the knowledge in the subject area. And I don't mean to discount those at all, but those are, to me, the basic requirements, the sophisticated requirements of these other ones that I've been talking about that are layered underneath those to really enhance the effectiveness of technical expertise. And so I think that hopefully this you know, will also come back to the importance of cross-functional thinking and collaboration. And so in the end, I would, I would say that the SCRS experiment largely underperformed and did not realize the expectations that it was intended to achieve. And this is bringing me to the final point that is critical with the, with the public sector startups is having an empowered champion is critical. And in the absence of an empowered champion, the ability of a startup to do its mission can really significantly be impacted. So that requires a lot of cultivation because champions don't offer their their social and political capital for free. And so I think it also comes back to some of the soft skills I, I keep harping on and, and bantering about, but those soft skills apply in many directions, not just horizontally and, and collaboration, but also vertically and persuasion and demonstrating a value proposition to potential champions as well as clients for an organization. And I think that's the last point I make is that you really are best served by adopting the kind of mentality in the private sector that you have about customers, about relationships. And I think that's difficult. And I'll tell you, in the State Department, it was extremely difficult. And it wouldn't have hurt for us actually to have some MBAs and some people who understand how to run marketing. So this is another example of how you know, the government needs to adopt, I think, places like the State Department. It's, it's, it's important to continue to recruit generalists and particularly, you know, you can keep recruiting people with political science, law backgrounds, but we need people who can be in Embassy Beijing and understand artificial intelligence, who can understand biotechnology, who can understand how that's impacting strategic rivalry and can connect the threads across. And right now, we have less and less of that in our diplomatic corps, uh, much less in the rest of the government. So hopefully that gives you a little more insight into 
you know, the question you asked about startups and its broader implications. It's, it's great context, Matt. I really, I do appreciate you giving us kind of a look inside, a little inside baseball there. And I think you hit on a, a theme that's become a central one for this podcast, especially when we talk about people who are thinking about getting into government, about listening first and then kind of developing a mission. You talked about understanding a problem and then crafting a mission around it or cultivating, you know, champions or, or, you know, getting uptake and getting people to come to that meeting under when they're not sure where the authority is. And you talked about the value of soft skills. And I think those two things are directly related, you know, to have, to get one, you need the other. And so really do appreciate that. I think there's one other piece there that I, that I'd like to talk to you about the role of mentorship in your time in government, both having mentors and serving as a mentor. What does it mean to you and how have, have mentors helped you kind of navigate some of the decisions you've made in your career about when, when and where to go? So I think in all aspects of American society, we've, we've had mentors and we, we have mentors, our coaches, our, our churches, our synagogues, um, you know, these kinds of institutions and people, places, teachers, etc. our parents. And so, and I think this is definitely generally appreciated, you know, the role of mentorship. And so it takes different forms. You know, there's active mentorship, there's, there are less active forms of, of mentorship, but it's, I found sometimes some of the impactful mentorship I received was almost implicit even, and it wasn't necessarily somebody who would actively sit down with me and have lunch and, you know, talk about career or questions about a particular problem I was working. Sometimes it was just observing how foreign service officer or a military officer might, you know, be conducting themselves in a meeting, how they might treat and lead the people who worked under them or interacted with the people who led them and they were responsible to. And so a lot of those insights were what I would call passive mentorship. And so as we engage in the world and with other people, I think we just have to, at an individual level, be conscious that we are always in a continuous mentorship role and that the people around us, in particular more junior and subordinate folks, are actively taking all of that in and making conclusions and forming their outlook on, on how to be servants of the public will and the public good. So that's maybe the first point on mentorship I would make. The second point is that public service is ultimately about giving. And I've seen a couple different cases uh, generally where at some point in careers, the giving portion of the pie becomes less important than the receiving portion of the pie. And I think it's always good to kind of do a, an oil check in the engine and to make sure that the giving part is in balance with the receiving part of, of mentorship. And that's not easy because responsibilities as one gets, you know, more progressive in their career, certainly do their best to crowd out that fine balance. And then the, the third point on mentorship is I think the best way for me to, to take advantage of it has been to do what I can to share it. And so in one job I had, I had a much more active organizational leadership role. We had probably a roughly $400 million budget. We had people deployed worldwide, several hundred person organization. I mean, it was pretty involved uh, organization. But we were also very, a lot of junior people, a lot of junior people. Um, and so, you know, you kind of had to adapt my role and what they needed. 
and balance that with what the assistant secretary in the bureau needed and having you know having very specific conversations with him about the staff and what they needed and vice versa and so you know you really do have to find a way to make mentorship real and meaningful both individually but also for the organizations that we serve and, and lead or are led by others and it really adds up over time you can really do some great things and the best part of my career to be honest with you has just been seeing people I've either worked with for and more often that have served you know as part of a team that I was leading and just to see that I, I would never claim credit for anyone's success or development but to see that you know what I, I hope I I touch that individual because I see them person doing great things for the nation and wanting to do that even more uh, as a result and inspiring that individual to do more. Last point I'll make on mentorship, take time to do it. Uh, I'll give you an example. So for the, for the university that I graduated from, every year I would organize a, uh, they have an honors group that comes out to Washington every September. I placed great value and spent a heck of a lot of time organizing a day for them to come in and meet with very senior people as well as working level people and people in between at the Pentagon, both to inspire them about public service, to help them contextualize for many the value of public service, particularly at a school in the Silicon Valley that places a premium on getting to the top fast, as fast as possible and making as much as you can while you're on your way there. And then the last thing and reason I would do that is because for me, it was incredibly inspiring and I learned a lot from seeing how another generation is starting to think about the challenges facing our country and the world. And so it's not just me mentoring them. I actually got a lot of virtual mentorship from them, whether they realize it or not. Thank you for the reminder, Matt, that service is fundamentally about giving rather than receiving and, and in the act of doing and the act of giving that it has an interesting way of coming back around mm-hmm. to you. And, and as you were speaking, it made me think, you know, we talk a lot about growth mindset and lifelong learning and just always being willing to, to try something new. But, but I think there's another form of the growth mindset that, that you hit on, which is the growth of others and being willing to embrace the growth of others and, and help foster it, I think is perhaps the most fulfilling thing that, that we can do in, in any role, whether it's in public service or, or not. So I, I know I'm, I'm going to let you go here in a minute, but before I do, we face a lot of challenges in our country today, both at home and abroad, and you're right in the heart of it. Can you give us just a minute on what is keeping you going in your in your career and in your mission? And where do you derive your your motivation, your inspiration, and your optimism from? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot about history, and I think about the trends, global trends that are like underway right now. I think this is a little bit of a take on on former Secretary Mattis. He he described America has two powers: inspiration and intimidation. And I think America has a third power which is innovation. And so around those three principles, inspiration, intimidation, and innovation, I think there's a fundamental integrity about the American identity. And there's a fundamental value of the American identity. And its character is unique. It's, it's, a, it's a very precious thing to take care of. And that embodies itself in the, both the call and the conduct of, of public service. And so integrity and judgment, I think, are again two two attributes that I would commend you know your your podcast listeners to to think about. And public service doesn't have to entail 
you know, 30-year career in government, a two-year career in government. There are all kinds of ways to do public service uh, in your churches, your communities, coaching a little league team, you know, just all the various ways that we, we do this and, and find it. But as part of this American identity, I think we as a nation have got to find a way to get back to thinking about particularly the two powers um, that I think we are losing a little bit of an anchor, namely the inspiration and, and innovation and find ways to enhance those in our national dialogue, as well as the way we just, we treat each other and, and conduct our affairs with our fellow American citizens. And as public servants, I think we have a, a strong calling to really embody those behaviors and attributes. And so, you know, as, as you all move forward and in your endeavor, particularly with this initiative that you've done, which I, I think is great and commend, I think it's a it's a way to contribute to this refreshing of kind of the American dialogue and identity. And I you know I wish you well, and I'll, I'll support you you know in any way that that I can. Thank you, Matt. I think that's a, a heartfelt message. I appreciate it, and and I think it's a good it's a good place um, for us to leave it. So, with that, I, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to be with us today, for sharing your generosity of of time and insight with our listeners. And, and thank you for all that you've done and continue to do for our country. Yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure. And as I, I, always tell, uh, I always tell my parents when I uh, visit with them, I work for you. And just always remember that about public servants, that, that we serve you. And it's important that you make the most of our service and expect the most of our service. For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.